So we're coming to the last part of our series in 1 Corinthians, but for the grace of God. And today is going to be entitled Evidence for the Gospel, Evidence for the Good News of what Jesus has done. Paul's letter uh, that we've been reading over these months has been soaked in grace. Paul is a man of grace. And it Uh, This letter, the the story of Paul writing letters and Paul traveling around Asia uh, started many years earlier. Christianity had been birthed in Jerusalem and Judea. uh, And probably as much as 10 years previously, uh, persecution has caused believers to move out. And they've moved out through uh, parts of out of Judea into Samaria into the further parts of the known world controlled by the Roman Empire. And believers had reached the city of Antioch that we referenced earlier that was very close to the epicenter of the earthquake in Turkey. And some there began to preach, Jews began to preach to Gentiles, those who were not Jews, And numbers of them had come to faith. And the early church in Jerusalem heard about it and they sent Barnabas to check it out. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 11. And when Barnabas gets there, there's this interesting phrase. It says, Barnabas saw the evidence of the grace of God. He saw the evidence of the gospel in front of him. And having seen it, He thinks there's one person I know who needs to help in this situation. So he goes to Tarsus and he gets Paul and brings Paul to to Antioch. And in Antioch they stay for at least a year and they teach the church. And this church in Antioch becomes an incredible church uh, of the grace of God, sending church that uh, does so much good. And in this season that Paul's there, a guy called Agabus, who's a prophet, comes down from Jerusalem and he prophesies that there's going to be a, a famine, there's going, to, uh, uh, be, uh, there's going to be difficulties that are going to hit the Roman world. And so the believers in Antioch, under Paul and Barnabas' encouragement, they take up an offering and Paul takes it to Jerusalem. Paul takes the gift to Jerusalem. And so... I want to give you that background because as we come to the end of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, that gives you a little flavor of what this man was like. And we're going to read together now 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is what it says. Now about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering, so that no more collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia. And perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you just in passing, since I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord allows. 
But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me because I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanus. They are the first fruits of Archaea and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. I'm delighted to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaicus present because these men have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. And if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've, um, how many of you have seen The Lord of the Rings? Okay, so for those of you who haven't, there's a bit of a spoiler alert. I'm going to summarize the end of the story here. So the return of the king at the end of the, the third part of The Lord of the Rings series, it is a glorious ending after defeat had seemed inevitable. The king's victory over the powers of darkness brings a new start for the people of Middle-earth. It's the story's climax. The king has returned. He is victorious. All it now needs, surely, is they all lived happily ever after. And yet the film runs on for more than 15 minutes Finishing with the day-to-day lives of ordinary hobbits in the Shire. And we see how they live in the light of the king's victory. Is it really necessary? The end of 1 Corinthians can provoke the same question. Paul's letter has been a tough read for the people in Corinth. They've been severely told off by Paul about divisions in the church, inappropriate behavior. Worse still, aspects of their meetings, Paul says, are doing more harm than good. And then Paul, in chapter 15, presents the glorious climax of the gospel, the good news, of Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection. And Tim uh, shared with it magnificently Last week, King Jesus, who died, is risen from the dead. He has defeated sin and death. And for all God's people, this changes everything. God's kingdom has come, and one day we'll see it in its, all its fullness. Chapter 15 is a glorious end to this letter to the church in Corinth. 
All it now needs is glory to God. Grace be with you all. Lots of love, Paul. But instead, we get 24 verses of seemingly unnecessary detail about money and travel arrangements. The promises of God in God's word are life to us because of Jesus' victory. Because of Jesus' victory, everything changes for us. They bring us hope in the darkest days. In days of terrible turmoil, we've been talking about what's happening in parts of the world. Only Jesus' death and resurrection makes any difference. It makes the ultimate difference. It brings us hope in the midst of bleakness. The promises of God and what Jesus has done for us on the cross enables us to live in a new way. It should change the way we live. And after describing Jesus' victory over death, Paul says at the end of chapter 15, Therefore, my my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so what Paul does after this glorious moment of talking about Jesus' resurrection, Paul goes into some detail. This is how it should impact the way we live. And this morning we're going to explore ways Jesus' resurrection impacts our daily lives. Evidence for the gospel, evidence for the grace of God. We see Paul's expectation of the church, of a people, which in its very DNA is generous to a fault. Evidence of the gospel should impact how we live. It should, we should be the most generous people on earth. C.T. Studd, the 19th century cricketer, he played for England in the infamous Ashes series where it was named the Ashes. He gave up his career and a huge fortune to be a missionary to China. He died 50 years later with five pounds to his name. And he said this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If we understand, if we really grasp what Jesus did on the cross when he died and when he subsequently rose again, if we truly get it, it should change our lives forever. What about you? Have you understood the gospel? If you're here today for the first time, and maybe you're wondering what's going on in this place, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came from heaven to rescue us, to bring us back to a relationship with a God that was broken because of our turning our back on the God who created us. And Jesus has made a way for us to know God as a father through his death and his resurrection from death. He is alive and alive forevermore. And because he is alive, we will live forever. Even though we die, we will live again and we will be with him. It is glorious good news. And when we understand the grace of God, everything changes. We are saved by grace. It is all a work of God. We have done nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to deserve knowing God. 
We're new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. God has literally put his DNA in us. We have changed, we've been changed forever. And no wonder Paul expects the first thing, the first evidence of people who've understood the grace of God is that they become generous givers. Because God is a giver. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. God has given his spirit and poured his spirit on us without measure. Changed us at a heart level. He gives grace, we're told, to the humble. And experiencing God's grace should cause us to be generous. Should Paul says to the Corinthians in two chapters, the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 7, that we should now excel in this grace of giving. Worldly wealth is perishable. You cannot take it with you when you die. It's what you do with it in this life that matters. Jesus talks about money more than anything else. A third of his parables, his stories are about what we should do with our money because he, kn- he knows that it's such a stronghold in our lives, this idea that it's mine and I've got to keep it. No. The gospel says that if God has given us so much, how can we not withhold what God has given us to others? Terry Virgo says this, if God, it takes God's grace to liberate you from the natural tendency to cling to money and put your own needs first. Only God's grace breaks that hold. We've just given as a church 10,000 pounds. It's a drop in the ocean just into this situation in Turkey. It's very New Testament when churches and people of God do things like that. Paul has told the Corinthians about an offering to help believers in Judea. They're facing hardship. It's what I was talking about earlier. And he's asked them to take up an offering. And the Corinthians have written to him and contacted him and asked him some questions about it. And in what Paul writes in his letters, all his letters through the New Testament, we see his passion to help those who are less fortunate, those in need, those who are poor. And he encourages every church he visits, visits to be generous. It's this love and care for those who are needy that transformed the first century. The church went from a small group of people to literally be hundreds and thousands of people across the world in the first 300 years. And it was partly because of the grace of God changing their hearts and lives. They loved those around them that were in need. They gave them, they spent themselves for the poor. When when plagues struck, it was the Christians who stayed and died caring for people. And as a result, the church just grew and grew because people saw the evidence of the grace of God. They saw the evidence of a God who loved them and cared for them. 
willing to lay down their lives for them, willing to give the best that they had to care for them. We are to be a church that remembers the poor. The gospel, we're told, is good news for the poor and the broken and the needy. That's why in these last post-COVID months, we've been giving ourselves to so many things in terms of caring for those who are broken, whether that be in terms of well-being, mental health, whether that be feeding people, whether that be welcoming people who are forced out of their homes and having to travel, come to live in the UK because they can't live where they're living. That's the gospel. And in these months, we have blown our budgets, some of our budgets out of the water to do it. But it's the gospel. And it's why we need to hear God's challenge through Paul. Paul's challenge is get ready to give. It's no optional extra. Deep arms, sorry, deep pockets and short arms means that we have not understood the grace of God. If the gospel hasn't impacted how we deal with money, we've not really understood the gospel. If we don't give, we've not been overwhelmed by God's grace towards us. Giving is a battleground in this world. And so we need to be intentional, Paul says. Get ready to give. What about the financial austerity that we're all facing? Well, I want to tell you we live in the most privileged part of the world. We are among the richest people in the world today. Our response depends on where we see our source of provision. If it's our job, if it's our employer, if it's the DSS, then we will struggle to be generous. If we see our source as being the God who controls the heavens, the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, then we, will, we know that the more generous we are, we know that God will meet our needs. What about us? Are you ready to give? We see Paul drawing out, everybody has a part to play. Each of you is to set something aside. Each of you. Not some of you, each of you. That means rich and poor. Was the church in Corinth rich? No, it would have been full of slaves. Many slaves would have come to faith with no money. Each of you is to set something aside. No one of us has an excuse. In a later letter Paul uh, to the Corinthians, Paul reminds them about the grace given to the Macedonian churches. And he says that when under the most severe trial, the Macedonians experienced abundant joy. And in their extreme poverty, it welled up in rich generosity. What a provocation. Everyone has a part to play. We also see Paul telling them that it's part of our worship. He says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside. The first day of the week was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It was the day when the church gathered to worship. 
Generous giving comes out of our worship of what God has done for us. It's a reminder also for us to give our best. On the first day of the week, we set something aside. Not what's left at the end of the week. Clearly, Paul expects believers to give to the place where they worship. If you don't trust the leaders where you worship, you shouldn't be in that church. And if you're part of Hope Church here where you regularly worship, it's where you should be giving generously and joyfully. Are we generous givers? The Corinthians set aside cash weekly. For us, many of us don't operate in that world anymore. We do things, we get paid monthly, we do it by standing order through the bank. Few now carry cash or write checks. But for those of you who do, that's why we still have an opportunity as part of our worship for you to give. And so we have a bucket at the back and upstairs. What about us? I talked to church leaders around Winchester. I was talking to one of the church leaders recently and was just talking about the finances. They talk about the financial situation they're facing at the moment in terms of keeping a building open in the cold and, uh, and all that they're trying to do. They have a massive, massive financial challenge. This is an issue in terms of what happens in churches. And so our regular giving needs to increase so that we can do more. So for those who are already giving, let me encourage you to review what you give. For those who are not giving, let me urge you, spend some time reflecting on the gospel and what God's done for you and let it stir you to be a generous giver. And in, as in Corinth, where they took up uh, occasional one-off collections for special things, we're going to be doing the same. In a, next month, we'll be taking up a special offering. We'll be talking about it at our In Focus meeting at the end of this month. It's part of our worship. And Paul says it's also a response to how God prospers us. How does God prosper us? He prospers us in all sorts of ways through benefits, through wages, through bonuses, through loans, bequests, windfalls, investments, assets that increase in value. The challenge that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler in Mark's gospel, he challenges him to give everything away. That's not Jesus' challenge to us today. He does that to the rich young ruler because money was his God. And the rich young ruler goes away sad because the hold of money on him was greater than the gospel, the offer of the gospel. We show that the gospel has changed us by giving generously. So what's a good proportion? The Old Testament talks about tithes, it talks about which is a 10%. Actually, as you read through the Old Testament, that was just a minimum. Talks about first fruits, giving the best of what you have from your crops and what you grew, because it was an agrarian society. 
And in the New Testament, Paul simply doesn't set a rule. He just expects joyful, generous giving. C.S. Lewis once said this, I don't believe we can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. We see a church that's generous in giving. Secondly, we see in this passage a people who in their DNA are committed to the mission. I don't know about you, do you remember when you were in school? Uh, For some of us, that was a long, long time ago. And perhaps brings back uh, difficult memories. Probably brings back more difficult memories for the people who taught me back in those days, actually. (laughs) But when the teacher stepped out of the room, what happened? Now, for some of you, when the teacher steps out, the the classroom stays perfect. All the kids, they they stay working at their their, their plate, you know. When the teacher stepped out of the room, uh, it, it was, goodness knows what would happen when I was in school. Literally, Paul has stepped out of the room. He's been in Corinth for a long time with them, and he's now traveling. What happens? And Paul is writing because he wants to make sure that they haven't forgotten what he was saying to them when he was in the room. You see, Paul's passion and commitment is to reach more people with this glorious gospel. He wants people to grasp the wonderful news about Jesus. And he's absolutely committed to it. And he hopes, he's believing that the people in Corinth have caught his DNA and they are still as committed as when he was among them. He's a father figure to this church. They're his children we read about in chapter 4. They carry his DNA. And with others, Priscilla and Aquila and Silas and Timothy, Paul had been there for more than 18 months as the church started. Many Corinthians had come to faith. And the church was established on Jesus Christ and the revelation of who he was and what he'd done. The church carried Paul's heart for the lost. And so as we look at Paul and we look at these verses, we see something of what the church should carry in its DNA. Paul was a man on a mission. The church should be a church on a mission. The gospel is amazing good news. And Paul wants to visit them, but he says, I can't visit you yet because God's opened an amazing door for me in uh, Ephesus. And he wants to share the gospel in Ephesus. God's, and there's opposition. And Paul says, I'm going to stay here because God's doing some amazing things here. God's reaching people with this good news. Effective ministry does bring opposition. It does get tough from time to time. But Paul's always looking to reach more people with the gospel. Our encouragement is we should be looking to reach more and more people. We should be a church that welcomes people in from wherever they are from. Traveling with Paul was an adventure. You never knew what was going to happen. He was a man on a mission. Anything to reach more people for Christ, that's what he says. He's more than a man on a mission. He's a man with a plan. He's, this is a good thing to have a plan. 
And we see as we explore, he, he writes, he tells them some of the things that he's hoping to do. He doesn't know all the detail. So he has a plan, but yet he's flexible. He's trusting the Holy Spirit to lead him. He says, I'm going to come to you and I hope you'll send me on my way, but I don't know where I'm going yet. And so we live with the tension of, of having plans, but trusting the Holy Spirit to lead us into what God has for us. We're to be a church that's agile and flexible. The church that Paul is writing to in Corinth has so many connections, so many international, multicultural connections. As you read through this passage, there are five areas mentioned. The Galatians, the Macedonians, the Judeans, the Ephesians, the Archaeans. This church is touching regions way beyond The privilege we have as Hope Church in the center of Winchester is God is bringing people from many different nations to us. You are so, so welcome amongst us. And our hope is in the time you're with us that you grasp in a deeper measure the gospel and that maybe in days ahead God will move you to different places and when he does that you will take the gospel with you and you will have an impact And so as a church, just like the early church in Corinth, we want to see this gospel reach the nations. Where's our mission field? Where are our connections? Well, for many of us, it's work. It's the workplace. It's the schoolyard. Dropping our kids off at school. It's the office canteen. It's our neighbors. It's our family. But we have a glorious gospel. Paul is a man who's on a mission. Paul's a man trusting the sovereignty of God. He says in verse 7, I'll do this if the Lord permits. He knows God is, over. God is working out his purposes. It's not Paul's plan, it's God's plan. God wants to reach more and more people. God is passionate about seeing his children come home and come to know him. We see in Paul a man who builds team. He partners with churches and works with individuals. He knows they can do more together than they can apart. And so when we are giving, we're giving into this uh, situation in Turkey, but we're giving to people we know are working in the area. They're part of our family of churches. A New Frontiers family of churches. We know that they're already there feeding the poor, clothing, helping people. And we know that as we give, we know it's going to land in the right places. We work together. Paul is deeply relational. He loves those he works with. He loves the Corinthians. And when he came, he said, I'm going to come for an extended period. He expected a warm welcome. He expected the church to be welcoming. We are to be a welcoming church wherever people come from. And as part of the Commission family of churches, part of the wider New Frontiers family of churches. We are a church on a mission. Lastly, we see Paul is a man of grace. This letter starts with grace, it ends with grace, and it drips with grace all the way through. We see it in how he deals with Apollos. 
See, the mission is important to Paul, but it doesn't trump everything. We read in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul is the apostle, recognized as being the apostle to the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. If you like, he's the leader of the team. He has huge influence and authority. We read on many occasions of him sending people to represent him to different churches and places. And we read here that he has strongly urged Apollos to go to Corinth. He said, I strongly urged him. In apostolic terms, that means that's as strong as it gets. And he says this, Apollos won't go at the moment. Wow. Do they fall out? No, they don't. Paul says he'll come when he has the opportunity. Here's the point. The mission doesn't trump grace. Apollos needs to know in his own heart that this is the right thing for him to do and this is the right time and moment. Paul won't ride roughshod over Apollos' conscience or Paul rank. He is not overbearing. There are people out there who say that the Apostle Paul was overbearing. It is rubbish. You see here the grace of God. He's an emotion. You see, he is emotionally intelligent the way he treats Timothy. He says, when Timothy comes to you, he's going to be anxious. Care for him, look after him, make sure you treat him well. We need to be people of grace. The leaders in the church need to be people of grace. Leaders of churches should not be overbearing. We've been hearing a lot about church leaders being overbearing in recent months. Your leaders need to be men and women of grace. Is that our experience? We need to be a people overwhelmed by God's grace. And the evidence of the gospel is in our generosity. We're just open-hearted and open-handed. What God has given us is for him to use through us. Are we? Are we caught up in God's great mission to rescue people? Are we overwhelmed by God's grace? This is what it says at the end of chapter 15. As Paul is running from this glorious message of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, of sin being defeated, death being dealt with, he says this, but thank God, he gives us victory, that's God, over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. What you do for God in these days, you might think, does it make a difference? Yeah, it does. We're going to just take a moment to worship God together, to focus on the grace of God, to allow the challenge of this passage, the challenge of the application of the gospel, what it the difference it should make to our lives and the way we live in these days. 
we're going to allow it to soak into our hearts. So I'm going to ask the band to come and join me. And while they do that, I'm going to pray. And I'd just like you to just open your hearts to God and ask God to speak to you in this moment about the glorious gospel. Have you lost your first love? Are you as passionate now as the day you first realized what God did for you? Or have you just settled? Does joy fill your heart when you get up in the morning as you think, God loves me. The God who created the heavens loves me. How amazing. He sent his only son to die for me. Wow. Maybe we can stand together and I'll pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for your amazing grace. Totally undeserved, totally unmerited. We did nothing. We were far from you, not even thinking about you and you came and rescued us. You came and found us. We thank you for the wonder of the cross. We want to thank you for the wonder of your son who broke into this sin-sick world to rescue people like us. Thank you for this good news that you come to save us. Thank you that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We thank you for this glorious grace that is ours, this glorious good news. And we say thank you for your son Jesus and all he has done for us and all he means to us. God, we ask you to come and capture our hearts again with the wonder of the gospel. Touch our hearts that we would be the most generous people on earth. That we would be people passionate about seeing this gospel reach the nations for your glory and your honor. Amen.